Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is John Alterman. He's a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, where he holds the Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy and is director of the Middle East Program. Our conversation today focuses on Joe Biden and what we can expect as his administration takes on a hugely challenging Middle East portfolio. John, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be with you, Bill. Some commentators are suggesting that this is a moment of opportunity for America to reset and rethink its policies toward the Middle East. But I'm wondering, um, are there not a whole bunch of banana skins for Joe Biden to slip on? Well, there always are, and I don't think that's unusual. I think, you know, the, the, the question that the Biden administration is going to have to confront is, well, the general theme is restoring traditional American foreign policy. There also is, a, I think, a consensus that the U.S. has had to change its strategy in the Middle East for some time, and how much of the old strategy the administration should adopt going forward, and how much innovation there should be. It's not so much that there are parts of the Trump strategy that they'd want to maintain, but are there new Biden strategies toward the region that would prevent overinvestment in the Middle East, overmilitarization of the U.S. position in the Middle East? And I think how you do that, what of the Obama's strategy, which was rather hands-off about a lot of issues in the Middle East, how much of that to pursue, whether there are areas where the U.S. should be more hands-off, whether there are areas the U.S. should be more hands-on. Again, it's it's not a question of, of the, the Trump strategy per se, because I think there's a consensus the Trump strategy didn't work. It's how much of the Obama strategy these guys want to revert to. And I think you're going to get to to maybe 50 or 60 percent, but not much more than 50 or 60 percent. And and the big challenge among many big challenges is the Iran nuclear deal. Should uh, President Biden rush in where angels fear to tread or, or should he be just very, very cautious? Anybody negotiating with the Iranians who rushes in is going to have the Iranians take them to the cleaners. Uh, the Iranians are really good at using time as a tool on their side. And I think one of the things that the, the Obama people were proud of is they were able to use sanctions to have time work in the Americans' favor. It's a hard problem for the administration now to think about how quickly to work. The Iranians have a presidential election coming up in June. It's unclear how much you could get before then. It's unclear how much that might interrupt negotiations. The Iranians are certainly eager for a resumption of negotiations. They're eager to lift uh, sanctions. But the Iranians also seem willing to agitate to get more of what they want in the near term. And I think part of the strategy of the Biden team will be can we use this interregnum to build more international support? I mean, not only among European countries who are very disappointed with the Trump team's departure from the JCPOA, but is there a way to use this period 
to get Russia and China in a better position vis-a-vis Iran, to, to reconstitute that broad international coalition, uh, which the Iranians could facilitate by some bad behavior in the next few months, assuming that sort of May-June is going to be a very hard time, maybe in April will be a hard time to get much in negotiations because of the presidential election. Is there a way for the administration to use the next few months to build international solidarity and make the Iranians eager after the election to negotiate and be more conciliatory? Or do you risk the challenge of you get into a, a tit-for-tat series of of escalations where not only do you not get in, move toward the direction of, of more negotiations, but actually you you fall into something that's either war or short or a little short of war, significantly escalated tensions, um, because you haven't been able to get enough to 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 make uh, negotiations look attractive to the Iranians. Pacing is hard, but I think that the single easiest mistake to make is to be too eager, uh, because the Iranians will, without question in my mind, pocket whatever concessions are made and continue to press. Yeah, as you say, uh, very tough, very skillful negotiators, and uh, they will play a hard game. I'm just wondering, though, about the Israelis. Um, you know, the Israelis are saying, some of them, look, we do not want the U.S. back in this agreement. We would suggest, Salah have done this, uh, uh, that we should hit the Iranians hard now to prevent uh, a resuscitated JCPOA. What does Biden do about the Israeli position? First, I think it's important to recall that that Benjamin Netanyahu has always been a very cautious uh, politician. He's been a patient politician. He talks a big game. But when it comes time to military action, he's generally been pretty conservative. Um, The other thing is I just don't think the Israelis want to start off the Biden administration uh, by upending something that's important to the president. And that point, I think, has has partly been made by the fact that uh, President Biden hasn't spoken to any Middle Eastern leader yet, spoken to a lot of leaders. He hasn't spoken to Middle Eastern leaders. And it uh, reportedly is is an issue of some comment in Israel that that the Israelis couldn't imagine that uh, an American president would bide sweet time before speaking to, to the Israeli leadership. I, I think the Israelis and the Emiratis and the Saudis are going to start off trying to find a way to cooperate with the administration, not starting off by punching the administration in the face and then saying, can't we all get along? That doesn't mean there's no possibility of a, a unilateral action, but, but I think that the administration is still finding its feet. The administration is still figuring out priorities I think you've seen a lot in, in Saudi behavior in the last few weeks that suggests the Saudis are trying to get in, in good graces with the Biden administration. And I think when push comes to shove, uh, the Israelis are going to be in the same position. You don't want to antagonize an administration you have to deal with for another, th- another four years. Yes, and as you say, uh, no phone call to Netanyahu, no phone call to Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, like the Israelis, the Saudis are, are very nervous about what Biden could possibly give up to the Iranians in terms of negotiated uh, a, a new JCPOA, rather. 
what do, do you think Biden has to reassure the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Israelis? Does he need to have a conversation with them, a quiet conversation? So first, I don't think we're anywhere close to a new JCPOA. That's going to be a long and complicated and, and, and difficult negotiation. We're not close to it. And, and certainly one of the lessons that uh, the Biden team will have taken from their time when they were on the Obama team, and it's many of the same people who will be negotiating, uh, is a, a need to, to better work with regional partners uh, and reassure them. So I think that there will be an effort to reassure, but there's also going to be an effort to lead in that the the Biden team will say, yes, we care a lot about your security, and this is how we will advance it, and this is your role. The U.S. won't do it all, but there will be a partnership, and there will be consequences for departing from that partnership, but but the partnership will have a, a, a significant element of reassurance. The Israelis and Saudis and Emiratis I've spoken to uh, think that the Biden team has a lot of this wrong. Uh, frankly, a lot of the people I've spoken to on the Biden team think the Israelis, the Saudis and the Emiratis have a lot of this wrong. And there will be some holding of the nose and going along. But I think that, that what they're talking about is a policy that will include reassurance, that reassurance will not be about more U.S. troops in the region, and the reassurance will partly incorporate an idea that Assuming that, that things go well with the Iranians, actually, the, the threat will diminish. There are some people in the Gulf and in the region who feel that, that hoping that any threat from the Iranians diminish uh, is a fantasy. But I, I think that that's not where, it's not where the Biden people are coming from. Mm. Let's, um, let's look at the wars in the Middle East. Uh, a fragile ceasefire in Syria, but you know Israel keeps hitting Hezbollah and and Iranian uh, facilities there. Um, a hot war in Yemen, very hot right now in the Medeb, and this fragile truce in Libya. How should the Biden administration approach these wars, each one with its own particular and complicated narrative and backstory? Um, it's it's approaching each of them very differently. I mean, they just named a. a a new envoy for the Yemen conflict. Tim Lenderking is a, a, a real veteran of regional affairs, a very thoughtful diplomat, a skillful diplomat, not an especially senior diplomat, but I think somebody who on a technical level is absolutely superb uh, and knows these issues inside out, knows all the personalities. Um, that's one approach. I was just talking earlier with the recently departed Libya envoy, uh, Stephanie Williams, um, who was not on a U.S. government detail at all. And in many ways, the U.S. has not taken a front row seat on the Libya conflict. I think the administration, frankly, hasn't figured out what to do about Syria and what to do about Syria going forward and has 
people for, of different perspectives um, in the White House and throughout the administration. So I think they, they still have to have a debate about Syria going forward. Each of these is going to have its own solution, but part of that solution is not going to be the large commitment of American troops. I think everybody knows that. The question remains, after the initial honeymoon is over, how much influence will the U.S. have to organize the world under a Biden administration? I think that's a Right now, they're basking in the goodwill of not being the Trump administration. They're basking in the goodwill that, that Tony Blinken is is well-known and well-liked and uh, and cares about working with the world. Um, what does that get you? And I think, you know, come summer or fall, we will see whether this is, is a viable uh, path going forward, how well diplomacy can be integrated with, with other tools of American power and how much diplomacy can be amplified to to deal with very, very difficult issues. And part of it, too, is what does victory look like? What does success look like? Uh, a lot of diplomatic success can take an awful lot of time and it's pretty partial. Will people consider that uh, a win or will people say, look, the, the, the Biden team hasn't been able to solve these problems? And that's, that's partly a, uh, an expectations challenge they have. Yeah, interesting, because I think the expectations are quite large, uh, particularly reflecting on what preceded uh, Mr. Biden. But, but looking at the Middle East team that he's assembled, uh, as you mentioned, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, Brett McGurk as Middle East coordinator, uh, Robert Malley on Iran and JCPOA, Dana Struhl as Pentagon Senior Middle East Advisor, Jake Sullivan, National Security Council Head. I mean, I could go on, but it shouts out a completely different approach than what transpired under Donald Trump. This is an administration that cares a lot about both experience and expertise. And the Trump administration was an administration that <clears throat> that didn't believe in that. This is an administration that I think is poised to better deploy the U.S. government in a whole-of-government approach where you can literally have thousands of people working in a coordinated fashion toward a single common goal. And I think that there's really no other government in the world that, that has that tool at its disposal. Now, it is complicated. It is. It doesn't always produce good results. It can produce some, some weak compromises. Uh, it's not the solution to everything. But this administration will be much more committed to process. This administration will have a clear strategy. Uh, and it will march down the field in a more disciplined way than the Trump administration. I think, you know, frankly, one of the, the questions that is still out there is how much difference does it actually make? I mean, for all that you can say the Trump administration was a disaster in the Middle East, some good things happened in the Middle East. There were fewer catastrophic things happening in the Middle East than people predicted. And if you look at, at sort of U.S. interests in the region... 
I wouldn't say it's an even balance, but it's a much more even balance than 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 people would expect, given the lack of interest the administration had in expertise, experience, connections, all those kinds of things. So one of the, the, the questions in my mind is, even if the Biden team will be doing things much more in the manner that, that I think is the right way to do it, and much more organized and, and much more disciplined, how much better will the outcomes in the Middle East be? Um, the, the, the overarching theme in many ways is the U.S. has been militarily overcommitted in the Middle East, and that's led to a perception that a lot of people have in the Middle East that the U.S. is a receding power, and that means people discount what the U.S. wants. Uh, there's a perception that China is a rising power, and that means people sort of double, triple, quadruple the influence they ascribe to China because of a sense that, that you're sort of buying a China future. Um, given that broader context, how much should the administration expect to be able to do? How much success should we expect them to be able to have? How many of the region's problems are either insoluble or defy solution by the United States? I think that's actually a, a harder question to answer at the outside of the Biden administration than, than it will be in a few years' time. I think the administration will have some marked successes, but fewer than a lot of people would like them to have. Mm, interesting. And I suppose the, the question hanging to is how important is the Middle East anymore to America? Well, and, and, and clearly the, the Biden team has said it is important, but it cannot be the giant sucking sound that draws all of American attention and military might and everything else because we have other things going on. And one of the interesting things in the way Jake Sullivan's organized the National Security Council is he's tried to to put much less emphasis on many of the regional bureaus, including the Middle East team, which last I heard has about six people down from about 30 in the Obama administration. Uh, and there, there are positions on cyber and climate and health and other kinds of issues that have tended not to get high-profile attention in previous administrations and seem to be primed to, to have more attention. So I think there, there might be more of an effort to emphasize the functional aspects of U.S. national security and less on the discrete bilateral issues that may be left to the State Department, the Defense Department, other places, and that could be good. Or it may mean that, that you just can't get the acute kinds of decisions and results you need because there are people who are, are working on 30 countries at once all the time. I wanted to ask you, John, about uh, human rights, uh, particularly in Saudi Arabia. How far do you think the Biden administration will go in pursuing a human rights agenda? As you mentioned, we've seen some uh, some action. Uh, Lujain Al-Athlou, the women's rights activist, has been released from jail, though she's still got many stringent conditions placed on her. But do you think they would push this quite far, or do they really need Mohammed bin Salman to be secure in place, and, uh, and it's not a card they want to play too heavily? 
they have been talking about the importance of values in U.S. foreign policy throughout the campaign and throughout their period in government. When I spoke to Jake Sullivan for a CSS event in June, he was quite clear on this issue. And, and his argument was when we have strategic discussions with the Saudis, and, and I think you know the thing I'd underline there is we will have strategic discussions with the Saudis. We're not going to cut them off. But but values will play a role, and if they're going to be abusive, that's going to affect the relationship. It won't end the relationship, uh, but it'll affect the relationship. Um, one of the, the phrases he used that struck me uh, was he talked about the almost ostentatious killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. This sense, and, and I, the way, what I take from, from that language is uh, he sensed there was a, a sort of emotional freedom that the Saudis felt they had to, to, to kill a U.S. resident who was a, a prominent critic. I think that, that the goal is not that the U.S. is going to make Saudi Arabia in, in the U.S. image, but that Saudi Arabia will consider the U.S. response when it acts in ways that offend U.S. values. And there will be consequences, not because the U.S. is is bent on accomplishing certain discrete outcomes, but that this, the Saudis will take U.S. values into account and seek to advance U.S. values in an effort to advance the U.S. relationship. There's no aspiration to have a um, to change the nature of Saudi society, but also a, a realization that if you offend U.S. values, there are going to be consequences, and values matter. Now, there are arguments for foreign policy that say values are totally irrelevant. Um, and Henry Kissinger, who uh, who's also at CSS, who I see periodically in in the building when we're back in the building you know, is one of many people who say that that's crazy to talk about values. This team clearly does talk about values and values will matter. We shall see how that plays out then. Um, you mentioned Trump had some successes uh, in the Middle East, and I think we, we have to acknowledge, though some of our listeners might not be happy to hear it, that he, he shifted a needle that had been frozen for decades with the transactional deals he used get Arab states normalized with Israel. Uh, do you think the Biden team will push even further down that road? And, and what do you think they'll do with Jared Kushner's peace to prosperity plan? I don't think the peace to prosperity plan gives you much to work with. The, the normalization with Israel does. Um, th- there was a sort of breakneck, uh, breakneck aspect to it toward the end as the administration was trying to add as many countries as it could and, and throw as many uh, sweet deals into the pot as it could. But certainly an Israel that is more integrated in the region and a region that's more integrated with Israel has the prospect of, of advancing a lot of U.S. interests. And it, I think it arguably has the prospect of, of raising a certain number of concerns. Um, but the U.S. has been working for a, a more integrated Middle East and the U.S. has lots of allies with similar security concerns and bring them together uh, is constructive. Um, 
Israelis are interested in investing in, in the UAE and, and Emiratis are interested in investing in Israel. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a flurry of, a trial. I think 70,000 Israelis went to the UAE in the months after the agreement, which is a, a huge number. And that may, that may yield all kinds of things. I think the other, the other piece of it is that if Palestinians feel completely cornered, that could produce different Palestinian politics than we've seen. Uh, so I'm not sure that, that we're, I'm not sure we've solved any problem when there are agreements between countries that have never been at war to start with. Uh, but it's certainly constructive and it gives us something to build on. I think the Biden team is going to build on it. Yeah, but uh, the Palestinians, they feel abandoned, don't they, by their Arab uh, neighbors and, uh, as you say, the peace to prosperity. Is that a, on a hiding to nothing or is it simply going to be pushed through? Because certainly uh, Netanyahu has made great gains uh, under the Trump presidency, you would say, for Israel, uh, but the gains have been at the expense of the Palestinians. What the Palestinians decide to do, what the leadership does, what the, the Palestinian population does, to me has not been settled yet. Um, Mahmoud Abbas is, is 86 and does not have the popularity he had when he started and, and frankly has never had the popularity of Yasser Arafat. Whether the West Bank and Gaza can be brought together under what kind of leadership, with what kind of purpose, is there a, uh, a different kind of relationship, what's going to happen to Benjamin Netanyahu in the March elections, to me there, there are a whole series of question marks. But I do think it is, it bears additional attention. Are you going to have some portion of the Palestinian community that, that feels that the conditions have become desperate and require def- desperate solutions? I don't think we're there yet, but I think we have to, to pay attention to the possibility and, and prepare for that possibility. But do you think that the Biden administration would support some sort of return to a two-state solution, uh, look back at the Arab Peace Initiative that you know was on the table in 2002, almost, almost 20 years ago? Do you think there's any possibility of that? The window for that is closing. People have been talking about the window for that closing for many years. I'm not sure at what point the window closes. Uh, but one thing that seems clear to me is that this is not going to be an area of emphasis given a lack of movement on either the Israeli or Palestinian side to move it. Uh, so I think there'll be some gardening and some you know, general upkeep, but it's hard for me to, to see the Biden team investing in it in the near term. If there's an opportunity to, then I think you might see something differently, but, but it seems to me that the, the strategy now is, is not to invest in activities that, that neither the Israelis nor Palestinians seem especially interested in pursuing. Mm. Well, now finally, John, great expectations can lead to great disappointments. When we spoke about the expectations that certainly those outside America feel towards this Biden administration, uh, particularly in the area of uh, foreign affairs, the Middle East has proven a quagmire for America through several administrations. Is it likely things will be any different uh, with the Biden presidency, four years hence, as you say, will we be in pretty much the same place or perhaps even a worse place? Well, predictions are hard, especially about the future. I, to my mind, 
the administration is likely to be remembered for something that hasn't happened yet. And that's been the case of, of previous administrations. The, the Bush team came in and had no idea they'd be fighting a war in Iraq. Uh, the Obama team came in and, and I think they had an idea about Iran, but, but weren't sure they could get an Iran deal and uh, certainly didn't think that Syria would be uh, the stain in its record that it's been and, and, and didn't think that, that Yemen would end up being as difficult a problem as it was. And, and for all the things that the Trump administration came in for, I think the idea of, of normalization, and they keep talking about the Abraham Accords changing the course of the Middle East. And while that's overblown, uh, it wasn't anything people were talking about in any real way when the administration came in. So I think that, that over the next four years, these things will happen. I think some good things will happen, some bad things will happen. But my sense is that the legacy in the Middle East is much more likely to be shaped by something they didn't intend to do initially rather than something they did. The intention is to have a much less military-centric policy and to use more diplomatic and economic statecraft in advancing U.S. interests. I think they would like their legacy to be shaped by that approach. Events will unfold in unpredictable ways. And my guess is that the last thing legacy will be shaped not by that effort to do more economic and diplomatic statecraft, but by some series of events which either is the successful product of that different approach or represent the failure to, to sustain that different approach in the Middle East that remains very troubled um, and torn by a whole series of internal and external conflicts. Yeah, so that's a case of watch this space, John. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bill, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest was John Alterman, a senior vice president and director of the Middle East program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. (music) 